From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. And we welcome you to Open Line Friday here on EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. Jack Williams away today. I'm Tom Price along with America's favorite theologian, Colin Donovan. How are you, sir? I am doing pretty good. You know, we were just talking about sickness, and we have it going around different people at EWTN. Well, we do. You know, nothing nothing horrendous, nothing uh, notable headline material, but... Just plain old colds and yeah, flu. Yeah, the and thing they said was going to be vicious this year is indeed vicious. So try to stay healthy, all of you. Absolutely. Well, there is uh, definitely nothing unhealthy about making a phone call. And you can do that. I promise you will not catch any virus by calling <laughs> 833-288-EWTN. You just can't do that. 833-288-3986. If you have a question for Colin Donovan, we have two lines open right now. 833-288-EWTN. If you want to uh, uh, call us from outside of North America, you can do that as well. Just dial the U.S. country code and then 205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000. Uh, Just uh, all you have to do is uh, do that, and then we will call you right back via texting. And then just give us your first name and your uh, short question, message, and data rates may apply. You can also send us an email if you prefer that, openline at EWTN.com, openline at EWTN.com. Be sure you put either Friday or Theology or Colin in the subject line so we can make sure that we get the, uh, the right questions to the right hosts. So here we are pretty much uh, actually a little bit halfway through the holy season of Advent. Hard to believe. We are, and we were talking before the show about Gaudete Sunday, Rejoice mm-hmm. Sunday, because we're moving from that contemplation of the second coming, uh, which our penitential reflection of the last couple weeks has been about, uh, to our looking forward to the celebration and commemoration of the first coming of our Lord. And so uh, that's the reorientation that is taking place uh, a week from today, I believe. As a matter of fact, we will be moving into the O Anaphons, which go through the different titles of Christ in the Old Testament Mm -hmm. uh, that look forward prophetically to the coming of the Messiah. Uh, So we're gearing up and we're getting ready for it. Uh, I know uh, uh, the children in our household are, all two of them, are looking forward to it as children everywhere are. Yes. Uh, Not just for, obviously, for the the gifts, but for the celebration of of our Lord's uh, incarnation and birth. What a momentous uh, day that is. It really is. And uh, normally at this time, we would uh, launch right into um, emails, and we may get to some emails a little bit later on in the program. But since we have sold out phones, uh, I'm I'm going to... uh, Make a motion here, Colin, that we go ahead and get to the phones. You going to second that? Yeah, let's let's go ahead and do that. Let's do it, and we're going to begin here with um, it looks like Mark in Encino, California. Mark, what's on your mind today? 
Oh, uh, hi. I'd like to ask about the unforgivable sin mentioned in the Bible. What mm-hmm. is it? How do you know if you've committed it or not? And if it's unforgivable, can you still go to heaven? Thanks a lot. Okay. Yeah, I would think if you're even worrying about it, you're not. You're not haven't committed it. Probably in good shape. You're yeah. probably in good shape. Um, you know, there's been a lot of contemplation over the years by by theologians, by the fathers and doctors of, of the church. And the general consensus is, the common teaching, as it were, is that it's the impenitence at the end of life. So, I mean, we can take the case of Judas. We don't actually know that he was impenitent, but, you know, he took his own life there at the end because of what he had done. And had he had, had, despite what he had done, if he had repented and turned turned to the Lord and asked forgiveness, he would have been forgiven. Uh, but it, assuming that he did not, then he went to the place prepared for him, as our Lord himself said, uh, and that was not a good place. So that final impenitence, you could look at it from the human psychological point of view, and that is that while God is ready to forgive, he wants us to turn to him. He wants us to recognize that we have sinned and to and to to ask his forgiveness, because that shows our own reorientation, the choice of our will to reorient. God has the will to save us. Uh What we lack is the will to be saved. And so Aquinas always speaks of the two two poles, if you will, of the virtues uh, as being uh, both of them vicious, the the pole which is an excess and the pole which is a uh, a deficiency. Uh And here, if your hope is such that, and this would not be true hope, that whatever I did, who, how, what? no matter how evil it was, God loves me so much, he'll forgive me, I don't even have to ask him. We call that presumption. Yes. And if we presume on God's mercy, then that is a vice. If we, on the other hand, we despair of his mercy, that is a vice. So we should all have hope, and the virtue of hope gives us that confidence that God is merciful, and he will forgive us if we return to him and turn to him and ask for it. But if we presume that, in our arrogance presume that, Mm -hmm. or if, on the other hand, we despair that my sin is so great that God can't possibly forgive me of that sin— then that's the, the, the vice of despair. Yeah. And so that impenitence at the end of life when re- rejecting God or in arrogance don't, well, I don't need God's forgiveness. I don't need his approval. I lived the way I lived my life. I did what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. And, you know, too bad. I'm ready to live with the consequences. Or on the other hand, oh, I'm such a sinner. God can't possibly forgive me. That despair. So those are the sins against the Holy Spirit who is there ready to move us and to move our wills if we give a slightest opening, move our wills to to repentance and God on his part. His will is already there waiting for us to say, yes, I forgive you. Just as the church is there, if you have that opportunity to say, I absolve you in God's name. And so therefore, that's, that's what it really is. There isn't anything we can do in life as Jesus himself said, against sins against the Son of Man, to denounce Christ, to repudiate Christ. We can repent of that if we want, if we want to, but we can't repent after the moment of our death and we're fixed in our, our state of grace or lack of grace in that moment. Very good. Mark, thank you so much uh, for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. One line open, 833 833- 
288-3986. We will uh, get to an email right now. This is from Tom, who says, If a Catholic couple is struggling with infertility, can the man provide a sample to a fertility specialist in a moral way? Uh, there is. It may not be as pleasurable as the other way of doing it, however. In uh-huh. other words, you can you can get copies of the male g- gametes other than by using, you know, self, uh, self-abuse. Right, right. And that would be the way that they would get. So that's something to talk to a urologist about, to a fertility expert. expert. But yes, it is possible to do, to do that. Okay. And then uh, here's one more as we're going to break here from Stan. Can you explain what the inviolability of conscience really means as applied to the laity? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure in that use of it. Uh, I think what it's probably saying is that we have the obligation to form our conscience. Uh, Authority, whether it's civil authority, parental authority, office authority, or wherever, Mm -hmm. uh, may ask us to uh, do things which violate our conscience that we have taken particular care uh, to form. Or which is in a subject matter which is ours uh, alone to make the ultimate decision, which in the medical case, for example, and often these are medical questions in the last year and a half, as we know, uh, ultimately the decision of whether to undertake a procedure or a therapy is, is ours rests with the patient who alone can decide the ramifications for them. They should do it with a well-formed conscience morally and a well-informed conscience medically so that they know the, the truth of the options and that they apply their conscience to those, those, uh, those possible options. Uh, so the inviability there is that when, when at the end of it you have decided, no, my conscience affirms that this is the right course of action, uh-huh. then we are free to proceed in that. Now, that doesn't mean autonomy of conscience, and that is... Well, the church says it's gravely evil, or the church says it's uh, you know an unforgivable sin, the taking of an innocent human life, for example, in mm-hmm. abortion. Mm-hmm. My conscience telling me that that's all right for me to do only demonstrates that your conscience is not really formed. And any kind of, of choice of error on our part is culpable. And we stand before God, as it were, without any defense in such a case. Stan, thanks so much uh, for your email. In a moment, we're going to get to uh, Rich on Long Island, also James in San Antonio, Jason in Mentone, California, Ronald in Pennsylvania, Joe uh, on Long Island as well. How about that? It's a full phone line here on EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. Do stay with us. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Glad you could join us for Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN Radio. Tom Price with a very good piece of news for you, and that is that EWTN Radio is now available on smart speakers like Amazon Echo, Google Assistant, and others. If you're thinking about a Christmas gift, you may want to consider this. For example, you can listen to EWTN Radio just by saying, Alexa, 
ask EWTN to play Open Line. And ba-boom, it's going to start playing. It's a wonderful thing. We have one in our kitchen. Do you have one of those uh, devices, Colin? No, we, we don't. We okay. don't have any of those. We oh. occasionally use Siri. Siri is a good but thing. But we like to make the choice when we're using Siri. Gotcha. All right. <laughs> Not have Siri make the choice when we ought to be using oh. Siri. <laughs> mm, very good. Good point there. Back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Rich on Long Island, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Rich, what's on your mind today, sir? Tom, Colin, hello. Hello uh, there. Go ahead. He said at Catholic High School, mm-hmm. and uh, a, a teacher friend of mine had this question come up in class. You know, we're talking about uh, the, you know, the incarnation, of course, mm-hmm. of course, this week uh, with uh, Mary, the Immaculate Conception. Mm-hmm. And a student asked him, and he brought it to our attention in the in the faculty lounge. Uh, if Jesus is, you know, through the hypostatic union, one hundred percent human, one hundred percent divine, and as such a divine person with a human nature, um, does that mean he has a full set of chromosomes that a normal human would have, an average human, uh, forty six, or does he have twenty three from the human side of Mary? And then what about the divine side is that compensate compensating in some way and i fully understand none of this means anything for my salvation or anybody's salvation it's yeah. an interesting question about the humanity of of uh jesus the the, the human man so i was just wanted to, i did some research i couldn't find anything in the last few hours so i figured i'd bring it to you sure um that's a good question and not one i can answer because we have no data on that uh, actually um i don't think there's uh you know, God God obviously made it happen. He could do it. So we don't uh, understand uh, that to begin with. So it becomes sort of, you know... Conjecture? Or... Conjecture, yeah, to, you know, go into those kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, recently I saw a question where somebody said, you know, Christ's AB negative blood as tested on uh, the Shroud of Turin and in other Eucharistic miracles, AB negative, meant that when we receive Holy Communion, we don't we can't be allergic to him because that's the universal donor. Well, that misunderstands the nature of the sacrament uh, to, to think that we are receiving Christ's blood, uh, the, the experiencing the properties of that blood, uh, when we receive the sacrament, because we aren't. The Church has rejected the two extremes. The symbolic uh, extreme of uh, started with Berengarius, and the, the uh, Protestants brought it to full fruition. The Eucharist is just symbolic. And a physicalist that we're actually, you know, that there's bones and there's blood and things there. No, the sacramental nature is different. And the same thing could be said of the incarnational nature. Uh, there's a mystery there that we can't understand how the Eucharistic miracles can, when the veil is removed, have all of the characteristics of the, you know, uh, of that human being. Uh-huh. Uh, but when the veil is there, we we only, you know, we experience it in the accidents only of the of the bread and the wine. So it's it's similar, I think. I don't know that anyone has ever looked to see in the Eucharistic miracles, for example. Um, 
I'm not sure it would have to be the tissue, I would think, to, to see what the constituency of the, uh, of the cells are and whether there is a nucleus with a full chromosome complement. But that is certainly not beyond the power of God. There is, as you say, there's no necessity to it for our salvation theologically. I don't think there's any necessity to it because human nature is to have an animal body and a rational soul. Uh, in a certain way, God could have created us with another way of reproduction that was asexual, like certain you know plants uh-huh. or or even some lower animals. So that that's irrelevant to the human nature from the metaphysical point of view. Uh, it's not irrelevant, obviously, from the material point of view as we live our human nature in the world. Uh, but I. It's not a question that concerns me, for example, yeah. uh, as to whether there are 46 chromosomes there or, or, or 23, because that's not the necessary part. We already know he only got his human nature from one human being. You might as well be really pedantic and say, well, without a human male human contribution, he can't really be human. Well, the data is that he had one parent. yes. yes. And he's God and man. Yes. That's what our faith tells us. So uh, an interesting faculty lounge question, maybe. But uh, I I don't even see any natural necessity that there be 46 chromosomes. Maybe there are. God could supply if he wanted to. Rich, uh, thank you so much for your call. We're going to stay on Long Island and talk with Joe. Hey, Joe, what's on your mind today, sir? Oh, hi. I'm glad you got to me. Great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, yeah, that sickness is going around. My daughter has a bad cold. It's not the COVID she was yep. tested, but uh, she's got one of those we understand. You know, uh, pretty violent ones. But anyhow, thanks. Uh, uh, my question has to do with the, the priesthood, the current, the continuing priesthood, uh, especially in the Catholic Church. In light of, of the book of uh, Hebrews, uh, Christ being the high priest, why and how can I explain it, especially to some of my Protestant brothers and sisters, why we still have a, a sacrifice of Mass mm-hmm. and the continuing priesthood? Sure. Um, because we're not angels, for starters. Mm. We're human beings. We are creatures with senses and so on. Uh we see how God prepared for the new covenant in the old, uh, precisely with all of those things, a visible priesthood, uh, visible indicators of religious practice and prayer and sacrifice and so on. Uh, and that wasn't a waste of time on Israel's part for 1,200-some years. Uh, those things were disposing us to understand the nature of sacrifice and the nature of union with God. Uh, there's a, a, a wonderful comment that uh, obviously is drawn from Scripture, but Fulton Sheen always used it a lot, and that sin is in the blood. Mm. And so the sacrificial nature shows us that there is something in the bloodletting of the old sacrifices, although they're, they were crude and all of this, which is talking about the, the, the destruction and the end and the penalty for sin. And, of course, we see that on Calvary that sin is in the blood, and in the death of Christ our sins are, are taken away. So the idea that somehow there is only a mystical priesthood, an invisible priesthood, and it's only Christ, uh, sort of flies in the face of the evidence of the Old Covenant and the preparation for the new. 
because in that preparation we see the elements which are in the church that are in the sacraments, but representatively, symbolically, forward-lookingly, sort of like the messianic prophecies, Mm -hmm. but realized and completely and perfected in the new covenant because it is Christ doing it. And the church doesn't say that it's the man that is doing it. It is Christ that is doing it, and the man is only acting as his minister, as a sacramental sign. In other words, you might say, uh, not like the Wizard of Oz, but the man behind the curtain, uh-huh. the man behind the man that we see is Christ. And the priesthood behind the high priesthood of the bishop is Christ, and the priest behind the lower priesthood of the presbyter, the ordinary, is Christ. And so exercising Christ's ministry, as Paul said, a ministry of redemption, and it's ongoing. Mm. It didn't end with Calvary. It didn't end with Pentecost. So that exercise gives is in a visible form as it was in Israel. And so that eternal priesthood of Christ previewed in Melchizedek, previewed, as it were, in the Levitical priesthood, uh, even sacrificially in the bread and wine uh, of the uh, of Melchizedek, mysteriously appearing uh, in Abraham's time, but now realized in the Christian in the sacrifice, which is then Christ's sacrifice once and for all, being represented sacramentally, so that the graces won on Calvary would now be distributed by Christ through Christ and in Christ, in his church, in his mystical body. So the mystical body, as constructed and as visible, carries out the identical ministry that Christ himself, from the beginning of his ministry of evangelization to the completion of it on Calvary and in the resurrection and in the ascension, continues that work today in the mystical body. And it would be imaginary if there weren't representatives of all of those elements and there are, and they're in the Catholic Church, they're in the sacraments, they're in the sacramental priesthood, uh, in the sacrament of marriage uh, for the sake of that vocation. Uh, so all of those things are, are with, uh, with us today, and that's the way that all of those things are realized uh, in, in a mystical sense, but also in an incarnational sense in the Church today and continuing. Joe, great call. Thank you so much for it. It is Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. Let's go to James now in San Antonio, listening on the great Guadalupe radio. James, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, uh, I had a priest, uh, not a priest, but a Protestant minister asked me one time if I was saved. And I was kind of wondering what you thought of my response. I said, you know, uh, the Protestant chief man is apparently evil and wicked, and as a Catholic, I see myself as an uh, image of God and basically good. I said, I have uh, the Church, and my faith is sufficient. Uh, the application of free will is sufficient for me with, uh, with the Catholic Church and the priesthood to go to heaven. So there's essentially nothing for me to be saved from. And uh, I was just wanting to see what you had to say about that uh, explanation. Yeah, you were fine up until that last statement, <laughs> because I'm assuming that if you're a Catholic, you're going to confession, so there's obviously things for you still to be saved sure, from. And the reason sure. we go to Mass and we receive the sacraments is because 
uh, precisely because we're not once saved and always saved, but because we're living in a real world, an incarnational world, and we live and we, we, we make choices constantly, and some of those choices are good and worthy of a Christian, and some of those choices are not good and not worthy of a Christian, and for those we must repent. And that's why the Church distinguishes between justice as given in baptism and restored in the sacrament of reconciliation and our growth in the graces of salvation, Mm. which we do by our living and cooperating with grace throughout the day in our prayer life, in our charitable life, in our active life, in our fulfillment of duty, and all of these things by which God acting in us. So, you know, to sort of carry on the the earlier conversation, we are... We are, in a way, Christ in the world. We have his grace, and we've got to hold on to his grace, or we are no longer Christ in the world. But yep. we can get that back by being united again to Christ through, through the sacrament of reconciliation. But it's an ongoing thing. It's not a once done, always done. And even for Catholics, it goes to the end of life that we fight that battle. Great call, James. Thanks so much for it. In a moment, we're going to talk with Jason in California. There's a line open for you right now at 833 288 EWTN. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Well, on the interstate uh, <laughs> equivalent of our switchboard here, uh, we had uh, just a huge bottleneck earlier in the program. We don't have that right now. We've got uh, open lines right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Colin Donovan, anything of a theological bent, 833 833- Two eight eight three nine eight six. As promised, here's Jason in Mentone, California. Jason, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, well, I was wondering, if done in moderation, is it okay to use alcohol and tobacco? Yeah, like like a lot of things, um, the object itself, or the the case may be, is in this case, tobacco and alcohol, but but it might be, um, you know, some narc- narcotic drug or something like that. Um, they're not intrinsically evil. They're evil through an effect and for the intention in which you use it. Mm. So if you use a narcotic to heal, to dull pain, you know, you have a toothache and the dentist gives you, uh, you know, hydrocodone or something like this, then you're, it's a narcotic. You would say, well, if you did it in excess, you could find yourself addicted. You could find yourself uh, even damaging your health, but you're using it for this particular purpose. For milder things like tobacco and alcohol, th- that is uh, the general statement still holds that there's nothing intrinsically evil about it. But in usage, you have to consider that same question. Uh, is this something I can use in moderation? Is it going to be a health problem for me? Uh, some people in their family histories, there's a history of addictive behaviors. Uh, so there's a lot of questions that have to be answered in the use of something that is essentially simple drugs versus those which are much more dangerous that would fall into a you know, what do they call them, Class A or Class yeah. 1 or something, mm-hmm. the, the, the heavy-duty narcotics and things like that. So it's basically the same question. Uh, I think you have to weigh the evidence. Uh, you know, some people use smoking, for example, use tobacco, then uh, they may be disposed to get cancer, and others people don't. Yeah. Uh, people who are, you know, 
you you see the stories. Yeah, I'm 105 and I have a you know, a, I have a shot glass of whiskey every day uh-huh. and a cigar, and yeah. I've been doing that for 90 years or whatever. <laughs> you know, sure. <laughs> so some people can do that. Obviously, it's it's not been any damage to her, her, their health. So that's the question you ask yourself: Is this going to be a problem for me? Is it going to be healthy for me? And what? You know, what can I learn about that? Okay. In and of itself, the use of neither is morally wrong. Okay. Jason, is that helpful for you? That was very helpful. I really appreciate the answer, and thanks for taking my call again. We appreciate you uh, listening to Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN Radio. Let's go to uh, Taylor now. Taylor is listening in uh, Tulsa on the great Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting. Hi, Taylor. What's on your mind today? Hey there. Um... So I, I was just kind of thinking, I just got in the car, I'm going to pick up my daughter, and I was listening to you guys, and uh, I, I'm newer to the Catholic faith, um, I'm actually going through RCIA right now, so mm-hmm. I'm still learning a lot, mm-hmm. uh, and when I originally got into um, going to um, a Catholic church, I, I wanted it for moral reasons, um, I, I wanted it to better myself, better my family, um, I, I had never even given it the thought of the eternal life aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that can kind of push me a little bit further in my faith is if I start considering that. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. And it's something I struggle with because prior to getting into the Catholic faith, it's a perceived notion of no one really knows. Um, so I was just going to see if there's anything that you can kind of point out to me in the Scripture or anything that you can point out to me that, that really kind of cements that in of, uh, the, the immortal souls aspect, if you will, sure. um, of eternal life. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think you don't even have to start with Scripture. You can start with, with reason and logic. And this is what the ancient Greeks do. So already with Aristotle, there is an understanding that there is a spiritual nature in man. You know, you hear all the time from, you know, the atheistic skeptic crowd that we're just a collection of matter and, you know, electrons flowing around in our brains and this makes us, you know, better creatures and therefore we, this is how we've advanced in evolution and all of that. Um, I don't think the ancients bought that and I don't think a time will ever come will that, that'll be demonstrable. And here's the thing. They noted there's a qualitative difference between man and animals. And I think you could still see and understand this today. We know that there are animals in nature, in the primates, and also in the cetacean, the whales, whose brains are as big as ours, in some cases much bigger. They have a lot of the convolution and other things which, uh, you know, scientists studying intelligence will say give them a very you know, a very good material intelligence, uh, equal to our own in many ways. We could never do the math computations of sonar, for example, in our heads, the way the whales do. So you can speak in natural intelligence, and then there's the human quality. And Aristotle and others have noted this throughout time, that human intelligence is qualitatively different from a mere animal intelligence. And you can see that in the fruits of that intelligence, in what has been done over the centuries in 
abstract thinking, mathematical thinking, astronomical thinking, evident even in the ancient world with the Egyptians and the Greeks and Persians and, and Babylonians and others. Abstract thinking and then, of course, civilization building, music and art, that these are qualitatively far beyond what any animal of comparable brain and, 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 and neurological sophistication can do. It's distinctive. And so the presence of spirit is in that way inferred from the nature of man. Mm -hmm. Now, all the, among the Hebrews, we, of course, learn from Revelation of the soul, that God infuses a soul into an animal body, as you will, into a material body, at least, setting aside the whole evolution, you know, can of worms and all that, but into a material body that we have, this spiritual soul has been put, and that's what gives it the qualitative distance. And the ancients made another observation. Anything material, because it's complex, is destructible. Anything that is spiritual, because it's simple, is indestructible. There's the principle of the immortality of the soul contained already in Aristotle and other ancient authors. And culturally, we know that throughout the, throughout the world and cultures, others just simply uh, understood this, and they grasped that there was something innately different about man that, that transcended uh, their you know, mortal existence. Yeah. Scripture goes well beyond that and teaches us the immortality of the soul, that our soul, which is uh, given to us at the moment of our conception and survives our death because it's a simple substance and perseveres eternally as God himself uh, is, or at least immortally, in that it had a beginning but never has an end, that this must have a destiny. And the ancient peoples also understood that, and they ascribed different uh, destinies to, to human beings as to where they, their bodies went and their souls and so on. Uh, and they took care of all of that. But in, in the revelation of the, of, the, of the scriptures, Old and New Testament, we see that full flowering of that understanding because it's informed by what God has revealed, what is supernatural and not necessarily attainable by uh, merely you know, logical deduction, such as an Aristotle or a Plato or others might have done. And that's what we get from sacred scripture. So I, re I recommend you read the Catechism of the, of the Catholic Church on the Im immortality of the soul to get some of the scriptural and patristic data, speaking of that. But always to remember that human beings understood this reality and inferred it from the nature of man before there was any divine revelation, or at least contemporaneous with yeah, it. Yeah. In Greece, as in Israel, they had divine revelation. And so... This is not something uniquely Christian, Catholic, or even Jewish. It's a logical deduction from man's very unique nature of all the creatures on this planet. And it's still valid, and I don't think that science will ever demonstrate it to be simply a quantitative feature of the number of nerve endings and axon connections and blah, 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 uh, that neurologists and chemists might uh, might determine. Yeah. Hey, uh, Taylor, great question. Thanks so much for checking in with us today here on Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan on EWTN. Tom Price here reminding you to check out Scripture and Tradition with our own Father Mitch Pacwa. That's coming up Sunday afternoon at 1 p.m. Eastern. This week, Father Mitch talks about the many ways God chooses to listen to us. When we experience human suffering, 
He listens to us on a very intimate level by joining with us through our pain. It's going to be a wonderful program. Do check it out Sunday afternoon, 1 p.m. Eastern. That's Scripture and Tradition with our own Father Mitch Pacwa right here on EWTN Radio. All right, we're doing uh, Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan right now. Let's go to uh, Joe in Missouri listening on the Great Covenant Network. Hello, Joe. What's on your mind today, sir? Hey, guys. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for uh, for what you're doing. I'm, I'm a big fan of the show. Thank you. Hey, um, I just wanted to ask a question today, a little bit of backstory. So I'm from a divorced family, and so my parents divorced when I was probably about uh, nine years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, my mother remarried and is uh, in the Catholic faith now. And um, my over time, my stepfather came to Christ. Praise be to God for that. It was an amazing event. And uh, but at the church at the time didn't recognize the marriage because um, you know my mom and dad's uh, marriage had to be annulled first. Mm-hmm. So they went through that process and it was annulled. But my question is. Um, what does that mean for the children of the marriage? Like, what does that mean for me? Yeah, yeah. From the perspective of the Catholic Church. Uh, You are the legitimate child of your natural mother and father. It's as simple as that, and the Church makes no other distinction than that. Even when it finds that there was some defect in the exchange of the vows that would make a marriage to have been null from the beginning— uh, I've never liked annulment. It sort of suggests that the church takes a hammer and breaks the bond of marriage, or that's a divorce. Um, granted, that's a civil feature, and this happens uh, in marriages as well mm-hmm. from the civil side of things. But it's the recognition after the fact that maybe one of the parties' will was defective, or maybe they were psychologically incapable of making a lifelong commit. Whatever was present there that the bishop could approve a decree of nullity for for your parents. But it doesn't change any of this. It doesn't change the legitimacy of any of their children um, from from the point of view. Not that. In our world today, that has hardly any, I mean, it, I think it certainly has a certain emotional context for people. Oh, sure. But it doesn't really have the kind of, um, well, cachet that in the past might have attached yeah. in such a case. People of a certain age would be a little more sensitive to that. I, I think so. But yeah. it's certainly not on Joe or anybody in Joe's yeah, position. Exactly. And I, but in any case, just to reaffirm, the church says that the children of that marriage, even though it was later found to have been uh, insufficiently willed by one of the parties uh-huh. uh, to be an actual marriage bond, uh, doesn't change their legitimate, the, the fruit of that marriage and of that couple, and it's a legit, uh, legitimate children before at least the law of the church. And I, it would be in civil law as well. All right, Joe, thanks so much for your call. Let's go to Ruth now in Chicago. Ruth is checking us out today on Facebook. Hey, Ruth, what's on your mind today? Thank you so much for taking my call. I'm glad to be talking to a Catholic expert. I went um, to confession, my last confession, and um, I I told the priest um, that I had gotten a product, um, a big product, and it was defective, and when I called about it, um, they ended up just sending me another one. And so I took the original one back to the 
back to the store, and it was very difficult because I'm a widow, and I had to, like, lug this big thing and get it in. And then they said, well, what's wrong with it? And I said, well, it's defective, and um, um, it was like a fireplace console, and I said, um, it doesn't um, work, and they ended up giving me my money back. And I told him that... um, um, it was kind of a sacrifice to get this, and I did it for my son and um, who wanted a fireplace, and it was kind of a big splurge for us because I am a single mom, and um, I was widowed. And um, anyway, he said, well, how much was the unit? And I said, $400. He said, you need to take $400 down to that store, and I haven't done that. And I, um, it wasn't my penance. He gave me a penance Besides which, and I told him at the time, I go, I could give that to the poor, but I don't want to do that. And he goes, no, that's justice. You need to go down there and give, like, walk into the store and give them that money. And, they gave um, you a defective saying, product, and you're paying the, so I guess maybe I'm missing something here. Okay, well, yeah, if, if, Ruth, tell me if I'm mistaken about this. You went directly to the manufacturer. They sent you another one, so in that way you were Right, and, and it's like if you if you look at the, like, we got junk. It's like forty nine dollars mm-hmm. to get rid of, of like their first thing that they pick up. And I was like, "What am I supposed to do with this?" Yeah. So I, I I took it back to the store and and the guy that took it in, I told him, "Well, this was defective." He goes, "Oh, well, we'll credit it. It'll go back on your credit card." And I said, "Thank you, Jesus." And then um, I felt like he was rewarding me for making the sacrifice yeah, for my yeah. son. Okay. He's in this little house, and he wanted a fireplace. Yeah. And then I mentioned okay. that. Yeah, no, pre- I think I I think I got the scope of it. Um, yeah, because really, most often the stores, when they sell you something, they say explicitly, if there's something wrong with it, then you the manufacturer is responsible for any repairs, or you bring it back for reimbursement. You can't do both. So that's the point of view that the priest is coming from. Right. Um, you know, in a, you got your money back, but you also then got a freebie from the manufacturer. You probably should have just thrown the one in the trash that you got the first, that when you got the new one that satisfied your purchase, at that point it's finished and you shouldn't have sought from the, uh, from the store, uh, the reimbursement of that. I would have complained to the store about the product and the difficulty of, of dealing with it as you described. But, uh, I, I think the, the priest point is you've, basically benefited twice from the same transaction, and that's what what his concern is. Okay. Yeah. So there you go. Ruth, uh, we hope that's helpful for you. It is Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. Lauren wants to know, aside from the direction of the Holy Spirit, what determines which order men become a part of when they enter religious life? Uh, the direction of the Holy Spirit is uh, so subtle that basically the practic- practical matter of it is that because we're so individual, people approach communities for which they feel an affinity for some reason, mm-hmm. an attraction. Mm-hmm. And it's in that attraction and the testing of that attraction that the vocation is determined. 
you know, it, it's not like a mystical email from the Holy Spirit, become a Dominican or become a Jesuit or become a poor Claire or whatever. But you're attracted to that life. And uh-huh. maybe it's a life lived in different ways by different communities. Maybe one is more contemplative. You know, the Dominicans have, have both contempt, especially the women, both active teaching, but sometimes also uh, very contemplative. Mm-hmm. So you might have to distinguish between a more active Dominican community and a more contemplative Dominican uh, community on, on the women's side. And so that's going to be an attraction on your part, how you were made, how are you raised, what, in, what your, you know, your spiritual objectives are. Do you want to serve people? Or do you want to just uh, pray and become closer to the Lord? So these are things that are coming out of you, which you wish you should be asking the Holy Spirit, asking the Lord to guide you, mm-hmm. uh, to move you, to make a good choice. And, and, you know, not looking necessarily for any kind of, you know, letter from heaven or, or positive indication. I will say most of the people who I know who have followed their inclinations where God seemed to be leading them, they get confirmations along the way. Ah. And that can be very, very helpful. And so the Lord is generous, and he gives you those consolations. Um, And then, of course, when they find they get into religious life or they get into marriage or whatever it is you get into in life, that's usually when the trials begin. So God, okay, I've got you here, the Lord says. Now let's see Will you persevere if I throw a little bit of trouble your way? Ah. And this is how he works with us. He attracts us. He gives us consolations. And then he wants to see whether we're doing it for the consolations or we're doing it for him. So you've got to be, be, look for the one, the inclinations, the consolations that lead you in a particular direction, the attractions that you have. And then be prepared once you've chosen them to persevere in that. Uh, St. Thomas always talks about the two elements of prudence, and that's the the good of the executive decision by which you make the decision, and then persevering and carrying it out and not being dissuaded by hardships, by tripping up on the road, you know, by the the different stumbles that we have in pursuing that. And that makes the, uh, the, the choice a prudent choice to keep going, unless it becomes evident that this is not where I belong. It's not a community that's faithful to the church, for example, Uh would be a a reason to leave something. Hmm. But otherwise, we go where the Lord does lead us, and we know that because we're human and God gives us those very human clues uh, as to where we should go and and so on. Great question, uh, Lauren. Thank you so much uh, for it. Here's one from Rain. Uh, A lot of people claim that reality has a secular liberal bias. How would an apologist combat this? A secular liberal bias? I'm not so sure. Uh, if anything, reality for most of human ha- history has had a conservative traditional bias. I would think so. Yeah, because even primitive cultures are usually very traditional in following their way of life and in sticking to their way of life. And uh, This is not a liberal inclination. Yeah, this is what I'm doing. I don't want to change. Right. You know, it's my tribe versus their tribe. Yeah. Or it's, you know, this is our territory. We want yours as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's always that self-orientation. If anything, any liberality in human nature and human societies has come from Christ and through the church. Yeah. In generosity, in mercy, in love of neighbor. This is what the church brought to Rome 
during the first centuries. You know, it's to see how they love the poor that converted Rome. Mm. So if anything, liberality has taken what is the generousness of, of the spiritual life in the church, coming out of Judaism and in the church as well, has taken that and has perverted it in terms of what? Mostly egotistical goals oh, now. Yeah, yeah. It's all, you know, it's all about me. It's all about my tribe again. Yep. And this is, uh, this, is the, this is the danger. So I would say that it's not secular, and I would say that it's not uh, liberal. Uh, what it is is it is uh, human. Mm. The church's values are human, and they are traditional in that they're preserving all that is good in human nature, in human societies, and human life. Very good. Rain, thanks so much for your question. And a quick one as we're heading out the door from Jason. What is the right context or viewpoint to read the Old Testament? Uh, I think that of the fathers, that uh, everything that about uh, Christ is revealed or is hidden in the Old Testament and revealed in the New. Mm. So you're looking to find Christ in the revelation of the Old Testament. Because after all, from Genesis, we learn that the Messiah will come, he will come through the woman, and he will crush the head of the serpent, the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. The rest of the book is about that gospel, that good news, that the Savior will come and save mankind from his, his sin and crush the head of the ancient serpent, the devil. And there are clues throughout the book. Right, and that's why you always look, there's a historical sense, a, liter a literal sense, which is what the human author wrote, and there's a spiritual sense, which in you will find these the messianic clues. It's what God wanted to, us to see in there. I mentioned earlier about how the sacraments of the, old, uh, of the new law are previewed, as it were, in the old, not under the same forms that we have in the church, but the very previewing of them is, shows how God is already forming forming the Israel to prepare for the church, to the flowering of Israel uh, in the church. And so that can be true of every other, uh, you know, Christological element that's hidden in the Old Testament. How is it revealed now in Christ, in the new, and in the church? All right, very good. Thank you so much uh, for your question. Uh, as we're heading out the door here, our Producer Michael McCall just let us know that of the passing of Michael Nesmith of the Monkees, people of a certain age will remember his great music. Uh, the music of the Monkees uh, died at the age of 78 of natural causes, so please uh, keep him in your prayers and his family as well. Hey, Colin Donovan, I hope you have a wonderful weekend. And you as well. Thank, Thank you. you. Looking forward to it. Here's something for you to look forward to, some of the great Advent and Christmas programming we have here on EWTN Radio. You can find out all about that by going to EWTNRadio.net. Click on the box that says Schedule, and you'll find out uh, exactly what we're up to. Got some great Advent and Christmas programming from now uh, all the way through. On behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price along with Colin Donovan. See you next week right here on EWTN Radio. God bless.